This is Ideas at the House, a podcast that features live talks directly from the Sydney Opera House stages. I'm Edwina Throsby. Today's episode is another live recording from Antidote, our festival of ideas, action and change. Enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for coming along. My name's David Spears. This, uh, this is a session I've been looking forward to uh, for quite some time. Who gets to speak? There's a lot in this subject matter. I mean, we live in a country, obviously, that prides its values of free speech, free press, pluralism, diversity, and so on. But what are the rules here? What happens when someone offends? Uh, you know, should they be shouted down, denied uh, their right to speak? And are those who seek to offend actually weaponising the very nature of uh, free speech to vilify others? We've also got a lot of debate at the moment around the free press and what does that mean in Australia and perhaps in some other countries as well. We've got a terrific lineup for you this afternoon. Bruce Shapiro is an award-winning reporter on human rights, criminal justice and politics. He's the executive director of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, which is a think tank at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. You may know Bruce better by his weekly appearances on Tuesday evening on Late Night Live on Radio National uh, as well. Uh, Sasonki Emesamang is a South African writer, has studied around the world and now lives in Perth, uh, where she's the curator of the Literature and Ideas for Perth Festival. And Lena Atala is the publisher of Mada Masa, a Cairo-based news website. She's spent the past decade working as a journalist covering Egypt and the region as well. Would you please welcome them all? Now, as I say, this covers a lot of ground, this, this subject matter. But Bruce, perhaps we could start with who should get to speak. Um, what are the rules of the road when it comes to free speech? What are the rights and responsibilities here? Well, I think there's really kind of a couple of different ways of looking at this that often, often get mixed up. We get into big arguments about free speech. One is the baseline right of free speech um, as defined by the state, as defined by government, right? Um, Rosa Luxemburg, the uh, great Russian revolutionary, in arguing with Lenin, said freedom of speech means exclusively the freedom of the speech for the right for the person who thinks differently. Without that, there is no democratic vigor, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we see that playing out, that battle over free speech, speech of people against the state, criticizing government, playing out now in Hong Kong, yep. playing out in Egypt, playing out in Venezuela, playing out in authoritarian states around the world. Then there's a related argument about free speech within societies like Australia or like the US where there is a legal framework for free speech, uh, where rights of freedom of speech and assembly are broadly accepted. And there we're talking about how we deal not only with the, the right to speak, but the responsibilities that come with speaking. How do we ensure speech for individuals or communities that have been historically marginalized or denied the right to the microphone or denied leadership in the media or simply 
so historically traumatized that, uh, or as individuals traumatized, that free speech has not had a lot of meaning. That's a big argument that's going on right now. And then at the same time, how do you deal with the, if we believe that free speech is important, it's because it's consequential. So how do you deal with the consequences, the impact of free speech when it's hate speech, when it is a provocation by people who already have a lot of power, as happens daily in the United States, <laughs> the, the current tenant of Pennsylvania Avenue, um, but also happens when you get, for example, figures on the far right or racists who mobilize free speech arguments in, a, in an attempt to shut down civil rights and in an attempt to, in fact, constrict the democratic space. Well, we've got that debate here at the moment with Israel Folau. Um, Alan Jones has said some things that, anyway, I want to come back to, to that and how we see this mobilization of um, uh, criticism to, sh to shut them down. Um, but, uh, Lena, give us a bit of your perspective in, in Egypt and the countries that you cover. I mean, this debate, I would imagine, is very different uh, there. We're on a different scale there. Give us a sense of the, the challenges confronting free speech where you live. It's, it's basically a reversal of what Bruce just mentioned in terms of uh, uh, Rosa Luxembourg. So it's basically the opposite of uh, people who have different opinions having the space uh, to speak freely. Uh, particularly in Egypt, for example, we have a situation where the media is being renationalized, uh, which is something we lived in um, up until the 1990s, and it's not special to Egypt alone. This is, uh, this is also the case in several Arab regimes where the state continued to be um, in tight control, direct ownership control over the media. And then in the early 2000s, we had some relative opening that you know, accompanied the uh, revolution in the information technology. So we had privatization of the media, we had several new voices, and then there is a new reversal um, of that, which is interesting because it's coming after a period where people started being exposed to this diversity of voices, diversity of opinions, and all of a sudden there is a shutdown on that and how is that happening? Is the Egyptian government shutting down private companies or buying? It's acquisition, uh, almost by force at some points, of the different media outlets out there. And how many independent voices are there still? So there aren't many of us uh, out there. Uh, those of us who are still there uh, operating, we're operating from very marginal spaces. Uh, my website, for example, has been blocked. Uh, two years ago, and it's through a lot of difficulty that people can access the information, and it's through a lot of difficulty that we are also managing to navigate uh, the blocked regime in order to get our voices heard. And at the same time, um, uh, those others who would want to set up new media, the barriers to entry are very high, be it the financial or the legislative. So the market is totally closed to new players if you're not government. And for, for, for those who can uh, access what you're doing, are you able to give voice to critics of government, to different religious perspectives, to... This is exactly what we are here for. Uh, I think uh, people ask me uh, what sort of compromises do you make in order to be able to exist. I do not feel that we need to really do compromises. We're being very directly fought on the ground. I'm very grateful that I'm free. I'm still able to travel. I'm still privileged enough uh, to be amongst you and to be able to talk. 
but that also comes with the responsibility of uh, continuing to be quite bold and raising the bar high in what we're doing, uh, even if we risk um, closure eventually uh, or not being, not being accessed at all. Uh, I think uh, while we're there, we just raise the bar as high as possible. Sisonga, let me come back to this question around free speech, what it means, what we need to actually protect, uh, where, where we do see free speech butt up against the sort of vilification that Bruce was talking about earlier. What's your perspective on this? I mean, I think it's interesting having... Uh, I'm South African, but have lived in Australia for the last five years, so I'm a bit Aussie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because so, so much of the debate about free speech in this country, with Israel Folau, it's about um, vilification of a different type, but so much of the conversation in this country is about um, racial vilification versus free speech. Uh, and I think part of what doesn't happen enough in the framing of the conversation here is a question not about who gets to speak, but who doesn't get to speak. So it's this underlying sort of the second set of issues that, that Bruce outlined when he uh, made his you know, opening comments, is that um, there can be a way in which it's distracting to talk about um, the rights of people to speak who already have a significant platform so Alan Jones is a perfect example. Mm. Um, even the, the, the stuff about Israel Falau, the parties that we're talking about are all fairly powerful parties, right? So Falau himself is powerful, the rugby union is powerful, uh, and, it's an, and, it, and it's clear that what he's done is hate speech, um, but there's a lot of money that everyone involved in the conversation has. And who, if we think about and we map who doesn't get to speak, then I think we're talking about free speech at a very different level. Mm. We're beginning to talk about the issues that actually, you know, people in other societies are dealing with. And we just don't have to because Australia is seen as rich, right? Mm. That there's a, there's a huge structural problem that many, many people don't see themselves reflected in the media. Many people don't have the uh, confidence and those viewpoints. Even if we talk about something as simple as class, how many working class people do we see getting to speak in the media? Yeah, so I think that the, it's interesting to talk about who gets to speak. I know that I'm here to talk about that, but I'm also really interested in who well, doesn't let, get let to me, speak. Let me flip that around. If um, we, we look at those who uh, are being vilified or offended by some of these powerful figures we talk about, um, yes, it, it, well, the Alan Jones controversy right now is about comments he made around Jacinda Ardern and you know, the, the suggestion that they're... they're um, gendered and, and, and violent in, in what he had to say. With Israel Folau, talking about gays will go to hell, uh, that this is um, you know, targeting that community and, and others that he had on that list. But aren't we seeing in both of these examples the mobilisation of those who are offended by this in a very new way, uh, bringing together a lot of corporate pressure on their employers uh, to silence them, essentially, right. to have Israel Folau sacked, to have Alan Jones sacked. Bruce, is this... Is this a good thing, a bad thing? What do you make of it? Well, the, the right to free speech and the right to say offensive things legally doesn't mean that uh, people don't have the right to protest what you do and, and to shut you down. And look, this has been... So they've got a right to say it, but the critics have got a right to... To mobilize. Yep. You know, I mean, free speech is not just about the words that come out of your mouth. It's about boycott, it's about you know, you know, the, the right to withhold your business from, from you know, uh, places that support um, 
viewpoints you disagree with, all of those sorts of things are, are a big part of free speech. So the idea that, there, that the right to free speech is this narrow right to, to be offensive, but everybody else doesn't have a right to respond or mobilize mm -hmm. strikes me as a fundamental misunderstanding of the, the roots in the enlightenment of free speech as we understand it today, the purpose in democratic society. Free speech is, it's not, there's this kind of primitive adolescent uh, libertarianism that you find on the internet, which is, <laughs> I should just get to say whatever I want and nobody, and there should be no consequences for that and me and my friends should just get to be able to say whatever we want. Well, um, <laughs> you know, Facebook or Twitter, these are corporate owned spaces. It's not the power of the state. Um, universities, are places designed for a certain kind of discourse. And, you know, you do get to set rules about discourse within private entities that have a higher purpose. What, 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 what does the First Amendment mean in the United States in this context? Well, I mean, presumably you have, um, you know, powerful figures who say offensive things. Right. What happens then? Do they invoke First Amendment rights? Well, all Americans invoke the First Amendment. We are all right, left, center. <laughs> we, we all think we know the First Amendment and all, all embrace it. It's a very deep part of American identity um, and a big part of my identity. I identify in some ways as a civil libertarian more than anything else. Um, the Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black used to like to say when the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of the speech or the press or et cetera, um, no law means no law. And the American tradition of decentralized uh, state and municipal government the history of resistance to the British crown m means we tend to interpret that freedom of speech as, as a fundamental part of national identity and a way of asserting power against the state, right? It's, it's just always there. Um, and, I, and, you know, one of the arguments I, I get into with, with good friends in countries um, like Germany, uh, or here, where there are either defamation laws or hate speech laws or, or other things, is that ultimately the First Amendment belief is that when you actively suppress speech through the power of the state, you're actually uh, weakening all discourse. Well, yes, are those state powers encroaching on free speech expanding, not just here but around the world? What's the experience in South Africa right now, Sasanka? So I, I think... I often get into these debates with my American yeah. friends as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that the idea of where the roots of your freedom lie is very important for how you understand this question of free speech. So as a South African, our freedom comes out of a long and very recent struggle for dignity. So in our country, the black majority had to fight very hard uh, to reach a place of freedom, and dignity is a core and fundamental tenet in our democracy. And so, uh, and of course, in that uh, fight for freedom, as in the, the United States, many of the people who fought for freedom of speech were black people, right? So, Steve Biko, you know, uh, writes, I, I, you know, I, I write what I like, and he's banned and then killed for his 
right to speak, right? So the proponents of free speech in a society like mine are black people. Right. Um, they are also the same people who have been fighting for dignity. And so the idea that your humanity is, is fundamental to your ability to practice democracy is central, a central feature of our society. And so actually limitations on freedom uh, on speech that are where it veers into hate speech are foundational for how people feel that they can practice democracy. So in the same way that an American sees the First Amendment as a fundamental value to their notion of what it means to be a Democrat and practice democracy, the same thing applies in South Africa, but from a different angle, which is dignity, and therefore you will not vilify me, you will not use racism to curtail my right to be able to speak. But does that have to be written in law? Do you need rules around? For us, yes. For us, for us, yes. And of course, we're coming out of a recent history in which laws were written to keep to suppress us and to suppress our dignity. So I think context very much matters. And There's no right or wrong necessarily, but I do think context matters. Yeah. Even in an American context, it's important to know that most of what we take now as the norms of freedom of speech were fought for and won largely by African Americans in the course of fighting against for slavery and then Jim Crow and Ida B. Wells. Memphis Ida B. Wells was exactly who I was going to. Yeah, Ida B. Wells is a great example. The great investigative reporter who exposed the impact of lynch law throughout the South was burned out of her own uh, newspaper in Memphis. Um, and you can go on and on and on. The great free speech, supreme, the great press freedom Supreme Court case, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, which established our modern libel law in the US, was about uh, advertising brought on behalf of civil rights marchers in 1960. Freedom of speech has always expanded by great struggles for civil rights. They're integral to one another. Yeah, sorry, Lena. I feel that um, since we come also from a context where uh, freedom of speech was never that enshrined in, uh, in the national, um, international tradition, in the tradition of uh, nation state building, just because in the 60s, our post-colonial movements were centered on basically fighting occupation, fi fighting, um, fighting uh, colonizers. This also meant that this tradition was never that rooted um, in, our, um, in, our, in, in how we think and how we're ruled. And I feel that this is, I think, a fundamental difference that is making us as a people not trust so much that the state will ever be the source yeah. of mm. freedom of expression or of the principles that and the values that lie behind freedom of expression and state institutions accordingly. So we never look out for the constitution as uh, the space that would enshrine uh, the right to freedom of expression. We'd never look at the legislation. As you said, in our case, the legislation a lot of the times is a restrictive tool more than anything else. And I think this gives an interesting flavor to how freedom of expression is fought for and practiced in our part of the world in the sense that it is really people who are constantly pushing for it and fighting for it, but also people who are receiving it on the other side cherish it when it's there. So when I just spoke about the relative partial opening of the public space for, different, for a diversity of media voices in places like Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and so on, people really appreciated it and started basically going to different media. And right now, when we are living through this process of renationalization of the media, people are walking away from the media. Mm. Yeah. And this is also a call to trust people's organic and spontaneous need for 
quality journalism, quality information, and their ability to choose between different, different kinds of information, which I feel is often absent mm. in um, our thinking of freedom well, of speech as a principle yeah. of enlightenment. There is something almost condescending about the sentiment that it has to be something that's engineered from above by state apparatus, by institutions of power, when people actually can also, um, you know, impose their own reality through their consumption, through their, you know, built-in media literacy. Well, they, they do that, they do that. But in social media, don't we also see these enclaves, these bubbles emerging where you're talking to the very like-minded, uh, you know, folks that uh, completely agree with you and, and shouting, not engaging with those <laughs> who you disagree with. Is this exacerbating, aggravating a problem here? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, and what it's, what it's done is taken an already existing mm. political problem for many societies, the kind of shrinking of public space in various ways and the political polarization and concentration of power upwards and stuff. And it's made it even harder to, to get to the real core purpose of free speech, which is meaningful airing of differences and meaningful discussion that changes minds, right? That, you know, we all do this with our social, we, we all are in social media silos mm. comprised of people who broadly agree with us about most things or share our outrages about most things. Social media is actually a lousy place to have conversation. Terrible. Right? So in a way, we're at this strange point where we need to reinvent the human meaning of free speech in the face of the way social media works. What, is, what does that look like, though, Sissonka? I mean, if, if, if social media is not the place to disagree and debate, yeah. so, where does it happen? Are we talking about festivals like this? And I wanna, I wanna, yeah, I mean, partly, although they are also uh, their own sort of echo chamber bubble. and bubble. <laughs> I, I mean, when I think about social media, I always tell my, my eight-year-old son, like, I feel like the rule that we use for our kids is probably the rule we should use for ourselves when it comes to social media conversations. And he's not on social media, of course, but when he's on a device and he's getting upset and, you know, that sort of, they hit this wall of like, mm. you know, they've just been on for too long, right? And he'll look up and he'll be very frustrated about something and I'll say, but it's not real life, is it? <laughs> and he'll go, no, it's not. And that's kind of like how I feel about social media. Like, I, 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 a lot of people I will could use get that upset advice. and I'm like, Wait, but it's not real life. Mm -hmm. uh, for some, I mean, I think that um, unfortunately, it, you know, in certain places in America is a, is a good example of a place where it creeps off real life because it um, has become a big public square and it does have very real consequences for people in their uh, real life, for physical Well, and in yeah, and in particular, I, I don't know how this is for you, Lena, in your work, but where social media becomes real life too often for journalists in particular yeah. and for social activists is where bullying turns into actual threat That's or right. actual That's doxing right. or a actual exposing of people That's right. That's to right. danger. That's right. And, and, that's, and, a, that's, I think and that's about suppressing yeah. free speech. Absolutely. Right? That's Absolutely. not... That, 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 that's the heckler's veto. That's the threat. That's the bully. Look, we, we, we do in Australia have laws around when it gets to that point uh, in, inciting violence, uh, for example. 
but there's been a lot of debate around whether we do need laws that prevent someone offending someone. And I guess that gets back to some of the examples we've talked about with Israel Folau and so on. And is this social media um, development, uh, is this fueling a lot of those trying to shut down those offensive comments? Is this the best way to deal with those who offend? So I guess, for, I, yeah, it's such, a, it's such a murky terrain. So I think to go back to your initial question, which yeah. I didn't answer, which was about, so where do we go if social media is increasingly becoming like this toxic cesspool, uh, which I think it is, um, uh, and is not, doesn't make itself, it's, it's not easy to, to have a real conversation, whether about agreement or anything else on social media. And so where do you go? I think you do have to go um, to real life fora um, I think you do have to um, uh, create other platforms. I don't think that um, taking people off a platform, the, uh, the, uh, the, the New Yorker example last year with... Um, Steve Bannon. With Steve Bannon. I can't even say the name. <laughs> um, uh, well, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because a lot of controversy around them, uh, whether they invited him, then uninvited him. Um, as a festival curator, yeah. as a festival how curator, you approach I'm not someone gonna, like... Yeah, I'm not going to invite someone and then uninvite them. So if I invite you, I hope that my job, I have done enough thinking about whether I want you on my platform or not, that that stands firm and that... But what's your original decision when, so when it comes to Steve someone Bannon, who you know has said offensive things? So on, on Steve Bannon, my original decision, as I am would not have been to invite Steve Bannon. He doesn't need that platform. Yeah. Uh, and I think not inviting him is not deplatforming him. Uninviting him <laughs> is deplatforming him, right? <laughs> so, so, so and, I, and I also think it's important to recognize that, and you used this phrase earlier, I wanted to, to come back to it. You use the, the, the idea of silencing. D taking Steve Bannon or Alan Jones off a particular platform is not silencing them because those are people who have access to many, many people who will find them if you take them off that particular radio show. So I do think there's a material difference. Uh, you are not silencing someone if you, um, if you choose not to invite them because the quality of their thinking is not sufficiently sophisticated to warrant me inviting him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, on this legal thing, I mean, my, you know, the traditional American legal answer to the question of laws forbidding certain kinds yeah. of speech would be the solution to bad speech is more speech. The solution to hate speech is, is contrary speech, right? The American legal tradition would say we can't ban people from the air. Now, I'm respectful of other countries political decisions in this regard, because it's, really it's really challenging. Just, just to explain that for me. If, I mean, someone in the case of, you know, Alan Jones has right. said things, and it's not the first time he's run into trouble, and he right. apologizes, and right. there wouldn't be this sort of move to get him off the air? Oh, there would be a move to get him off the air, but that in itself is more free speech, right? That is to say, right. people protesting against a broadcaster, people boycotting the, bo the broadcaster's advertisers, as we have seen, actually, with... Alex Jones, a, a noxious uh, U.S. conspiracy theory right-wing maniac. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm being nice, okay? I'm <laughs> um, a facilitator of mass shootings, okay? Um, you know, we've seen lots and lots of boycotts, but boycott is a kind of speech, right? And that's why this kind of 
narrow interpretation of who gets to speak, and speak, speech means only, I get to say whatever I want without consequence, is I think adolescent and childish. Is this, so is free speech being weaponized, getting, getting back to this point earlier? Well, very much. I mean, we have, you know, um, from the tenant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on down, mm. the daily now, manipulation of the free speech norm in order to promote anti-democratic values, in order to promote uh, racism, in order to promote anti-immigrant sentiment, which is also all about constricting democratic and public space. So is it being weaponized? Yes, I think it's, but I also think that's always been weaponized. I mean, early in my, early in my career in the 19, early 1980s, I covered rallies uh, in Connecticut, not the Deep South, in Connecticut, New England, by the Ku Klux Klan, right? And um, the Ku Klux Klan was trying to move into the deindustrialized North, manipulate working class white communities, and they would have these rallies that like 200 guys in robes were at, and um, there would be always be counter protesters, but what they would, the Ku Klux Klan would go to the American Civil Liberties Union whenever the, some local town would say, we don't want you here, we're not going to give you a permit. permit, they would go to the American Civil Liberties Union and say, please defend our right to free speech. And, and the ACLU actually agreed with that and went to town, uh, went to court on numerous occasions to get the Klan the legal right to speak. That doesn't mean the right to speak without con the, the consequence of counter-protesters. It doesn't mean the right to speak without the consequence of being surrounded by cops, etc. Look, listening to this uh, discussion, I mean, clearly there's you know, a lot of harsh words said uh, on, on both ends of the spectrum, and there's this, I mean, even Scott Morrison has said, we've got to learn to disagree better. Uh, this is um, a, a quote from Brett Stevens, the New York Times columnist, uh, in his speech, the, the dying art of disagreement that he gave to the Lowy Institute here. He said, you need to grant your adversary moral respect, give him the intellectual benefit of the doubt, have sympathy for his motives, and participate empathetically with his line of reasoning, and you need to allow for the possibility you might be persuaded of what he has to say. Can I ask you, uh, Lena, do you think, is there something in that? Do both ends of the spectrum need to be more understanding, more open-minded to engage with each other? I mean, I'll answer from the perspective of um, the website that I'm running. So if, if you ask me the question you asked her, if I would have Steve Bannon, if, you know, if, if that's appropriate or relevant at all, and also my answer would be no, simply because um, I'm not a platform, I'm a publisher, so I have my politics. And my politics mean that there are certain voices that I'm not interested in featuring. That does not extend to my journalism because my journalism is empirically powered. So it's fact-based journalism, it's empirics powered. Uh, we tell the story from different perspectives, but when it comes to voices, um, I can have the choice of amplifying the, the voices that, that reflect my values, while at the same time, I know that there will be um, other spaces to feature other voices, and then, and then again, I'd leave it to the public to, to you know, disagree or agree or to assemble. The, the problem is when the public is denied from this uh, from this possibility because there's someone up there making these choices um, for them. 
And just to circle back to the question of social media and all of that, I, uh, while of course I agree that um, given you know, the algorithmic development and the evolution of these uh, spaces as uh, spaces that are not necessarily conducive to real conversations at the same time, in a context like mine, I cannot afford to ignore it completely because actually it continues to be the only space where people can say something, can voice an opinion, and I have a strong responsibility to monitor that and to also take it into account when, um, when I'm covering stories. If we consider ourselves social observers of what goes on around us, it's very important to pay some attention to these spaces. The question becomes, Again, how do we engage with them? So for me, it's not a question of the, vo the sheer volume of people who come to me through Facebook, but also the, the level of engagement, what kind of things they say, what kind of things, uh, what kind of comments they make. So this is the kind of monitoring I'm interested in, mm. while in parallel also not completely relying on it. And this is why, for example, when people ask me, why don't you, for example, transfer your institution somewhere else and work out of safety. And for me, it's never a question. Part of our existence as an organization on the ground is to try to invest in community building, in restoring this, this value of companionship that I feel has been missing in media practice, uh, so bringing people around us and having these conversations. And this will also rule who to bring and who to feature and who to not feature. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a, a, absolutely right. I mean, I know there's a separate session looking at press freedom, but there is just one element of that, I suppose, that is worth touching on here, and, that, and you would know this um, in the American context as well. Here, the debate is about where press freedom butts up against national security uh, and the need to protect certain things that are classified and so on, but right. what, what, what do the public need to know, maybe embarrassing to the government, uh, versus what needs to be protected, what needs to be secret? Um, are we getting the balance right? We've got a hell of a debate here at the moment about uh, you know, raids on journalists and so on. Well, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson said that if kind of given a choice of government without press freedom or press freedom without government, he would choose the latter. <laughs> and um, I, I, the long history of national security reporting in the US uh, for whatever it's worth to inform your debate here, is that there's never once been a leak that has, uh, that's been published in American journalism history that has actually seriously endangered national security. And there, but there have been plenty of times when government has made national security claims mm. over information which turned out to be vital to Ju public debate. Julian Assange and, and WikiLeaks? Uh, well, class that as journalism in that in that I, I believe Julian Assange is a journalist and I believe that the um, there I believe he's not always a responsible journalist I think he's uh, made what at times I think are very bad ethical calls in the editing and publication of some of his material and that's a whole other argument but the um, indictment of Assange under the Espionage Act is a very dangerous precedent for all investigative journalists, what a national security journalist. What Assange is charged with in his relationship with Chelsea Manning in, in the 2010 case is something that national security reporters in all countries do every day, which is getting, working with sources, convincing them to hand over secret stuff. There's a, you know, a couple of really famous examples of where government secrecy turned out to be 
far less in the public interest than the interest of, of, of publishing. Um, you know, the beginning of the Iraq War, a classic example. Um, the Pentagon Papers case, which was the subject of Steven Spielberg's terrific movie, you know, a couple of years ago, in which the government, for the first time in American history, won a short court injunction, where the Supreme Court overturned it, preventing the publication of a historic study of how American, America got into Vietnam. And there's even a less well-known case, a case when the press did bend. In 1962, a New York Times reporter got leaked word of the impending American invasion of Cuba, a reporter named Tad Salk. He was all set to publish it. He'd written the story. The uh, White House got on the phone to the editors of the New York Times. He persuaded them that there was a huge national security threat here. Please don't publish this story. And the Times at that point agreed to not publish the story. What happened was one of the worst foreign policy debacles in the US, the Bay of Pigs, mm. in which um, a CIA army was, was decimated by uh, Castro. It was an American, enormous embarrassment to the US. That was kind of the last time, because then you get Vietnam after that, huge disillusionment with government. That, that was the last time that you would have gotten that kind of a wholehearted embrace of that's national security claims. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I, as I view, I, I view the national security claims being made here as quite alarming, as and in an international tradition of uh, state suppression of of national security reporting and, yeah, and protecting uh, at the expense of public exactly. interest. Exactly, and that, we do have an unblemished record, I would say, here in Australia, <laughs> when it comes to journalists not not publishing yeah. you know, any material that's going to put lives in danger. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's really important to, uh, to, to think about what's happening in Australia at the moment, uh, also in the context of, of domestic politics. So, I, so it's the, the raids on the ABC. I was actually in the building that day right. um, when that happened. I was here. Um, uh, so the raids on the ABC are alarming for you know obvious reasons, uh, but uh, I think this this you know, ASIO you know um, you know uh, Mr K story is alarming, uh, but I also think that if we think back to the last five or ten years, the complete blackout of information from Manus um, and Nauru mm -hmm. are also alarming. Um, yeah. And and it and it and and I think the uh, so what's at stake is is both the idea of em embarrassing the state, but I think what really is at stake is a whole bunch of uh, policy decisions uh, that the public cannot debate uh, because they cannot see what's happening well, it gets, on Manus. Gets back to the point you were making earlier about those who don't get to speak. Uh, exactly, and that is certainly a category. And that's and that's a, yeah. So it's what we don't see that I think is always important to keep uh, in mind. And so the, the, the security thing in Australia is often used in really pernicious ways. And I think the question of asylum seekers is, is a real blot on the national story here, but it has real free speech implications. And the press has been treated horribly when it comes to that question of Manus and Nauru. No access at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for Many years. Now, we might go to some questions, just looking at the clock. So we've got a, a microphone down here and one over there. Um, so if you do have a question, great opportunity. We'll just see if anyone, otherwise I'll, I'll plough on. But uh, make your way. We've got one there. No, that's a... 
a helper. Okay, so make your way down to the microphone if you'd like to ask a question. Right. So we'll come back to that. That's okay. Um, we got one coming down. Yeah. Look, we just in the meantime, um, we also have a, a real debate going on, particularly in um, in the UK at the moment with the Brexit debate. Uh, in in Italy as well, for some other political reasons there, uh, around the voice of the people and who how do you who has got the democratic right on their side here? Is it Boris Johnson in trying to deliver uh, the Brexit people voted for? Um, or is it the parliament that is the ultimate voice of the people here? Uh, are these competing um, democratic rights that we're seeing clash against each other right now? Who, who has the right to speak here? The oh. parliament, the prime minister? Does anyone want to weigh into that? <laughs> it's Everybody. <a> no, <laughs> no, I mean, and look, one of the things that you could argue Boris Johnson is doing is taking away the right of parliament to speak. That that's a problem. And it, it, you know, uh, to think about who's not in the Brexit debate is crucial. Think about Northern Ireland, it's key to the whole Brexit debate. Northern Ireland, at least in the referendum, voted as a Remain constituency across both communities there, right? It's represented in Parliament by a party that is a uh, I'm sorry, it was, a leave, it's a, it was represented in Parliament by a party that's a Leave party and strongly, the DUP, strongly allied with, uh, with, with uh, Johnson, um, but a party which doesn't have the responsibilities of government because there's no devolved local government in Northern Ireland right now. You've got another party in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, which is a Remain in Europe party, but which doesn't take its seats in Parliament for its own ideological reasons. So the, the voice of Northern Ireland is not being spoken mm. in Parliament. So this is, in a certain sense, we are seeing the consequences of suppression of speech and of deplatforming, not big offensive shock jock radio guys, but deplatforming entire populations, right? I mean, when, when asylum seekers are put behind um, a wall of press blackout of science, as happens in the US too, they are being deplatformed. Those voices, those stories are being deplatformed. Mm. So it's a complicated picture. But, 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 but is there a, a time when the majority is not able to speak? I mean, is, is that what we're seeing here, that the vote was for Brexit? So it's a, such a complicated question because we also know that voting, we have a, a world in which de democracy is in crisis. And many things have led to this crisis, but one of the features of the current crisis in democracy is that um, its uh, rules are used against people. And so people who vote do not reflect everybody who can vote. Right? Mm. And there are uh, uh, socioeconomic, all kinds of structural reasons why people who, who feel differently uh, do not vote. America is a classic example of this. And the act active measures taken to undermine people's right to vote. So I'm not sure that, the, that uh, a vote is necessarily an indication of the will of the people, but, but which it, is a yeah. fundamental tenet of democracy, well, this, this unfortunately, seems to, but yeah, I'm not. raise the question of whether we can have faith in any democratic decision. Yeah. Well, sure, people, well, well but, but look, it's. The point is that vote, a, a vote by itself isn't a democratic guarantor. It's got to be part of a system That's right. in which speech is facilitated, in which debate is... Part of the problem with Brexit 
the Brexit vote is that it actually Didn't, was arguably a not very democratic vote, at least to me as an outsider yeah, looking at it. was a political Britain, gamble that was very It's extra-constitutional and without even even thinking it through. And, what, you know, it, it, it didn't function the way a healthy democracy is supposed to function. I'm not talking about the outcome. I'm talking about the structure that went yeah. into it. And we do, the crisis in democracy, which is partly a crisis of free speech, is about the concentration of power upwards. Knowledge power, economic power into the hands of oligarchs, political power into authoritarians and oligarchs, leaving the idea of democracy and free speech as this kind of little withered... Hollowed out shell. Hollowed out You don't, you don't think this yeah. was an example of giving the people a say? Uh, yeah, I've had my say on this one. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's get some... Young people in the UK, I think, would differ with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am. Oh, sorry, whoever's first there. Yeah. Um, my question was just for uh, Mr Shapiro. I'm, I'm guessing no relation to Ben. Um, well, some distant genetic <laughs> makeup, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but um, you speak about um, Twitter and... Um, Facebook and these social media sites as being corporate spaces. Mm -hmm. However, Trump isn't allowed to ban anyone from his timeline and there are various rules in place that actually muddy the waters of that mm -hmm. kind of idea. And if you look at what's going on with Google and Project Veritas at the moment, mm -hmm. it kind of seems like even though these are companies, they're they are the forum where people are sharing mm -hmm. ideas. And if you look at Facebook with Libra, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the idea that um, a company could have company script um, as well and deperson someone on the banking side of things where they wouldn't be able to even spend money anymore because of cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Do you not think that Deplatforming someone on that kind of level is actually a dangerous precedent to set. Mm. Well, so I'm not familiar with the last set of issues you raised. Um, it, it's a little deeper into social media world than than I am, frankly. But here, I will tell you how I see it. Um, these are profit-making corporations that fulfill a a do fulfill now a central role in our society as carriers of information and communication and voices. My own view is that they are ripe for regulation, that they're Absolutely. public utilities, essentially. Public utilities of the information age and um, need some kind of framework in order to um, limit the interest of making money off of endlessly unregulated speech at the expense of thinking about the impact of it, meaning of it, consequence. Like, these are complicated new platforms and complicated, that raise complicated new issues that are really important for democracy. We've been through this before with the sale of broadcast spectrum, the creation of radio, the creation of television. Um, which different countries have handled in different ways, um, it, it, it needs some innovative uh, regulatory responses, in my view. Yeah. 
And that's something, yeah, we are still very much grappling with. Yes, ma'am, your question? Thank you. Um, thank you, Bruce, for the Tuesday nights with Philip Adams. Oh. They're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Worth tuning into. I just wanted to ask the panel to comment on the situation in Hong Kong mm. and who gets to speak there or who isn't getting to speak there. Lena, do you want to kick off on that? What, I mean, what's your perspective on what you're seeing in Hong Kong right now? I think um, at times of protests, it's, it's uh, of massive protests, it's very hard to, it's very hard to have a solid um, sort of picture of what's going on. And we have to come to terms with the fact that we have to hear so many different voices because, you know, it's a moment of anger that we have to reckon with. The analysis will only come later. So for now, I'm very happy to consume different kinds of things that are coming out of the, out of the media there because I feel that there are different flavors um, that can be conducive to us basically navigating the big chaos, the big protests that are happening there. I don't feel like we need to rush at a moment of spontaneous outbreak of protests into saying who should speak and who shouldn't speak. I don't even know who should ask this question, particularly at formidable moments of public mobilizations. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what you think, Sasanke, but it, it seems this particular movement in Hong Kong uh, isn't a, um, you know, structured with a, a top-down leadership uh, in that sense. So it raises the question about, um, you know, we know where this began mm. in relation to the extradition bill. Yeah. Where is it now? Yeah. What is this about? What specifically do they want from the Beijing-backed administration is, is the question here. Yeah. I, I, it's a, I think it's a, an exciting moment. It is an open question. Uh, it is, uh, in some ways, uh, um, when you have uh, a seemingly uh, structureless uh, movement like this, uh, it's either uh, destined for doom or going to be highly successful because we know that revolutions are moments in which um, when the authoritarian regime shuts it down, they are able to shut it down because they round up the leaders, uh, because they can identify the spokespersons. And so I, I, I think it's a very interesting and important thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other hopeful space in terms of pro-democracy movement, uh, it took a dip, but it, it's looking very interesting, is, is Sudan. Mm. Another place where, because they're number, they, they made some smart decisions about not having spokespeople, not having one place to pin where the dictatorship can pin somebody down, where the military, which remains in far too much control in China, where we know in a third, you know, where we where we know that the force against people is um, is is flat and serious. I think it's really interesting to not have spokespeople. Yeah, to have speech and, without and, and spokespeople. And an example of how difficult the authorities there are, uh, are finding it in their identity. Did you see last night? They've sprayed them with blue dye. That's right. But, but, but look, look, and why, why do that? Why, you know, first of all, it's just intimidation. But it goes actually to the meaning of speech. What we're seeing in Hong Kong is the mass withdrawal of consent. Mm. Right? There's, and it, similarly in Sudan, it, yeah. it, it, it's a withdrawal of consent there was from never authoritarian consent. governance. It's been a long time, yeah. No, yeah. Just, I was just saying there was never consent in the first place in Sudan. It's yeah. a massive mobilization yeah. of, right. uh, of public expression that wasn't possible right. before. Yes, yes, it, fair enough. Yeah, these are fair long enough. time coming, long pent up, exactly. 
howls from people. And so I think what's interesting to watch is the way, as with even social media, with all these new ways of, of thinking about how people organize in the face of authoritarian regi regimes. Yeah. And so it is, it's uh, free speech without spokespeople, which yeah. is fascinating. There's a little book um, by an American named Gene Sharp, American political scientist, called From Dictatorship to Democracy, which tr he goes back into history and looks at the whole history of these kinds of uprisings against seemingly immovable dictatorial regimes from Sparta up through the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And just exactly what, what you were saying, Lena, just that we don't, to even begin to make the meaning of this now or understand whether it's really leaderness or not or what the key, it, it, at this point it almost doesn't matter because so many different movements, voices, challenges are all happening at once. Let's just try and squeeze in one more question if we can. Yes. Idea of the de-powerful, if I can use that, the de-platformed, and if it's not on social media, where are they going to get their voice? And maybe what is the role of journalists in that? Yeah, well, who, who wants to tackle that? I mean, what's a specific example, if I can just ask? Of um, so, for example, for uh, let's take an Australian example. So, Sudanese youth in Melbourne, you know, where does their voice get heard? Mm in these debates which are about them. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good that's question. That's a great question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, here in Australia, I find you, you have the, the spokesperson, you have this spokesperson syndrome, you know? Uh, so then I'll get called to go to Q&A to talk about it. I'm like, I don't even live in Melbourne. <laughs> I've never been to Sudan. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so, so I, I do think there's a spokesperson syndrome, and so part of what has to do uh, happen is that uh, the mainstream media needs to get better at thinking through these questions and creating more and more opportunities for different kinds of voices. So to do the real work of journalism, which is to identify interesting people doing interesting things uh, and give them a space to articulate themselves. And I, part of my own big sort of struggle within journalism over the last 20 years or so has been to encourage reporters to not only think of who, A, whose voices are not being heard, but to develop um, toolkits that are more appropriate and helpful in getting those kind of voices onto our news agenda and, and into the news, right? I, I think, because it's not, it's not just, uh, do we have a spokesperson for, the, yeah. for this? It's, do we even begin to know how to interview an asylum seeker or what the meaning of their silence when asked a direct question, yeah. that sort of stuff. So the, so the part B of that, which is about the media doing better to go to communities, recognizing that communities may not be interested in talking to the media because of how their voices get distorted, played against us, et cetera, et cetera. So then, then, the, then the work is of recognizing that there are lots of ways in which people in communities are already speaking to one another, have platforms of exchange, et cetera, et cetera. So it's also to not assume that those don't already exist. It's to see 
uh, to what extent they're already working in ways that don't need the, the mainstream to intervene, intervene or in, interfere. And that speaks back again to the question of democracy. So what does it mean to be living in Australia if you feel that you can't trust the mainstream media and you don't even want to engage? That's a much deeper question of which freedom of speech is a part, but is in an insufficient way to think about the larger crisis of democracy. And the last thing I'll say is that I feel that uh, while we can also fall into this trap of altruism uh, when we talk so much about the need to feature the other, need to think of otherness, I think we need amongst ourselves to see how we deal with this complexity. And this is where I feel also journalism, formal journalism lacks in a lot of training in anthropology and understanding the complexity of society and how our subjectivities as journalists interfere with the people and the sources and, and the, the figures that we want to feature in our journalism. I think before going to that Sudanese person, as you said, we need to think of what is our relation with this uh, subject? How do we frame and deframe this subject in our heads before going and speaking to them. Well, a bit of homework for those of us in the media, I tell you what. Um, that was a great question, thank you very much. And we'll have to, we'll have to end on that one. Um, would you please thank our panel here today for a terrific discussion. Thank you, thank you. And enjoy the rest of the festival, thank you. <laughs>